How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 103 of X-Lapsed, where we are back on the path to X of Tens here with an issue of Marauders. Let's get right on into it here. This is Marauders number 12. Had a November 2020 cover date. Story's called The New Phase. Hey, we know someone who phases. Uh, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali. Colors, Edgar Delgado. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Robinson, Amaro, White, Sobolski are our editors, and this had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale September 9th of 2020. Now, we open, and before we actually get into the opening here, um, I do want to say that I love this cover. Very, very striking cover here. I even, like, briefly considered using it as a, uh, as an X-lapsed logo, sort of, like, it's, if you haven't seen this one, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you have, you probably know why. It, it's just a very striking cover. It's it's Kitty Pride or Kate, call me Kate, with her fists out. And instead of it saying whatever it used to say on her, on her uh, knuckle tats, it now says Kill Shaw, right? And it's just a very, very good-looking cover here. And I thought about maybe, you know, taking it. Getting rid of Kill Shot and putting like an X hyphen L A P S E D, you know, it's X lapsed. Putting X lapsed on her knuckles. Thought it might be a neat little look there. Maybe one of these days I will. I, I you know, I, I do like playing with my image manipulation uh, applications. So maybe I'll uh, make a project out of that. What for a, a rainy day or something? But with a fairly striking cover out of the way, let's get on in the inside here. Now we open with Call Me Kate surrounded by a bunch of mutants that she doesn't really recognize all that well. Emma tells her, hey, look around, because it's all those mutant refugees that the Hellfire Trading Company has rescued. They're all here for her. Storm shows up and does that weird culty thing that she's been doing since Hoxpox began upon every new resurrection. And hey, okay, 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 I got a bit of obscure X trivia for you. That we're breaking new ground here. We are, I mean, oof. You're going to want to get this episode bagged, boarded, slapped because we're getting some really good obscure information here. Did you know that this one time, Kitty Pride was scared by Storm's mohawk? Yeah, I bet you didn't. But it gets its dozenth or so mentioned in like six months right here. So that's how we know that Kate is Kate. Uh, Storm hugs Kitty and comments on her knuckle tats, which I still hate. Uh, the culty mutant chant commences, and we're off to the races. Roll call. Call me Kate, Lockheed, Emma Frost, Storm, and Sebastian Shaw. Then an info page, and it's a communication between Bishop and Beast. 
they seem to know that there is a, quote, bad actor on Krakoa who was responsible for Kitty's death. They don't know who that is, or they, at least they don't mention who that is, but uh, they have an idea that this was an inside job, which, I mean, is a step in the right direction. From here we get back to comics, and Kitty and Emma are on horseback on the beach. They talk about everything that's brought them here today, you know, Kitty's death and whatnot. Kitty asks to see what Emma learned from Lockheed. You know, Lockheed was the witness to, uh, to Call Me Kate's murder, and Emma found out everything that went down, and Kitty would like to get a glance, so she does. She gets to see it all. Emma then reveals that she has a plan, how they're going to get even with Sebastian Shaw. But Kitty also has a plan, and it seems like it might be a far more sadistic one. And she lets Emma read her mind, and Emma is at first shocked, but then delighted. The pair then head somewhere where there's a party in progress. And I mean, when isn't there a party on Krakoa? We see plenty of notables from both the Marauders book and the X-Men overall, like Cyclops is here, Kid Cable's here, a Wolverine shows up, and he congratulates Kitty on popping her resurrection cherry, which seems inappropriate. Um, though, if I'm remembering right, I'm pretty sure Joss Whedon had Wolverine congratulating her on popping a... Uh, uh, never mind. I'm not going there, but I'm pretty sure that actually happened. Um, Nightcrawler pops in. Uh, speaking of popping, he shares an embrace with Kitty. Uh, he hands over her Star of David necklace, which he mentions was almost given to the sea during that Viking funeral we had last issue. They talk a bit about having a lot to talk about, which makes me assume that the Way of X title was probably already in the talking stages at this point, though I could be wrong. It's a lot of talk of faith and Nightcrawler kind of being uneasy, which seems to be the premise for this Way of X uh, ongoing, or I think it's an ongoing, maybe it's a mini. Who knows? The Way of X book is what I'm trying to say. Kitty talks about her inability to use the Krakoan gates and how that initially, well, it pissed her off. But now, that seems like it was a lifetime ago, because it was, and she doesn't seem all that interested. Now, this train of thought is interrupted by the arrival of magic and a mariachi band. Okay, I mean, I don't know if there's an inside joke that I'm missing here. Uh, if anybody knows that if Kitty and Ileana have a penchant for mariachi music, let me know. Uh, Magic curses a bit before tackling Kitty to the ground in an embrace. Now this is interrupted by the arrival of the man with the least self-awareness on the entire island, Sebastian Shaw. He and Kitty share an icy embrace, and then Shaw hands over an aged bottle of whiskey so he knows exactly who he's dealing with. Kitty takes a swig before handing the rest over to Logan. Then, she and Ilyana give an Irish goodbye and bug out of Dodge. We next meet up with them, and uh, Kitty's eating a hamburger, and they're standing outside a tattoo shop, because of course they are. She heads in, and it's about closing time, but she asks if, uh, if the tattoo artist would uh, fit her in, because she wants new knuckle tats, because of course she does. Only these aren't the same tattoos, which... What was it? I don't remember what they even what they even said. <laughs> I don't remember what was it. Stay down? Nah, I don't remember what they said. But she doesn't want the same thing, so it really doesn't matter. These knuckle tats will, as the cover suggests, read "Kill" and "Sure." Okay. Now uh, she makes out with the female tattooist after the deed is done for reasons, and then heads out. She asks for directions to the harbor while dramatically showing the camera what her knuckles now say. 
Okie dokie. Um, and then we wrap up with our double page spread of creds. So we're a little, little wonky, a little out of order here. But that's the issue. Next episode, we'll be talking about X Factor number three. Eh? Okay, but first, let's talk about this one. I hate to say it. It breaks my heart to say it. I really didn't care for this. Um, to me, this is very reminiscent of, uh, I think it was Marauders number two. Uh, the only issue of the series to this point that I really didn't care for, and it all comes down to Kitty. I'm not sure what her character is supposed to be here, but whatever it is, I don't like it. Um, we do get some of the, like, sort of classic X-Men feels here. You know, the camaraderie, the family, the, the brother and sisterhood. But at the same time, it feels kind of manufactured to me. Like, everyone here was going through the motions and acting exactly as we'd expect them to. I mean, does that make sense? I mean... On its face, that's a good thing, right? Uh, people acting in character. That's a good thing. That's something I usually applaud. But here it felt very much like... Automated, you know? Just autopilot going through the motions. Uh, it almost... And I don't know if I've used this analogy before. I probably have. I, I repeat myself a lot. It felt like we're watching like the seventh season of a sitcom where everyone has their character ticks and eccentricities, and rather than actually having characterization, we just get those character ticks and eccentricities. This scene, at least to me, wanted to project that nebulous X-factor we talk about. We know we talk about it on the show a lot. Heart. You know, it wanted to project heart. Went through the motions to do so, but to me, it kind of missed the mark. And I really hate saying that because this is such a strong comic book. Um, but here, I just I just didn't get any emotion. I didn't get any... I don't know, it just didn't feel... And we, and we talk a lot about the value of life, right? Uh, in, in the Dawn of X books here. How it death is being brushed off like it's nothing because it kind of is. And the, the, there's... I felt like we had more relief over Kitty being alive last issue than we had here. Here it was just like, hey, congratulations on popping your resurrection cherry. And Ilyana saying like, Kate effing pride and then hopping on. I, it just didn't feel, it felt like, like the first day back at school rather than, hey, this person's alive again. It, it I don't know, it just didn't work for me. Um, I get what they were going for. And it was close, but it just missed for me. Um, let's talk knuckle tats, because, uh, of course, we got to. Um, now, are we going to believe that Kitty is planning on going through the rest of her life with Kill and Shaw on her fists? Is that really the kind of person she is that she's become? Uh, to give someone she hates permanent residence on her body? That seems a little extreme. Or, part of me wonders, since Kitty now knows she can be resurrected via the resurrection protocols, is she maybe not planning on being around all that long? Is her taking down Shaw also, is it like a kamikaze mission? Is she expecting to die while taking Shaw out? Because she knows she'll be able to come back. And she won't have Kill and Shaw on her fist when she comes back. I guess we'll find out. 
Um, really not much more to say about this one. I mean, it, was, it was beautiful to look at. Uh, but overall, I, I, I said it before, I think this one largely missed the mark. It over-relied on X-Men tropes without building on any of them, and featured a character whose characterization I can't really put my finger on. You know, it was pretty, and it gets us from point A to point B, but for me personally, this was kind of a letdown. Didn't hate it, it just, uh, kind of a letdown. Um... Hey, I'm not going to love every issue, even from series that I consider to be the, you know, some of the top quality stuff we're getting in comics these days. There's going to be hits, there's going to be misses, uh, and this one's probably just a miss for me. But it is what it is, and uh, that's all I really got to say about it. Now let's head into the mailbag here, and we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number 11. He says, I'll start by wondering why there isn't an X of Tens label on this book. It literally explains who some of the characters in X are. I read the crossover before this issue, and I just thought the different priestesses were involved in different parts of the story for no particular reason. This issue explains what they're, what they're there for. It also features a moment between Betsy and Saturnine, which sets up the whole crossover. You can read and enjoy X of Tens without this, like I did, but it adds to the story, unlike X-Force, which is completely irrelevant. Who was making the marketing decisions for Marvel Comics? They clearly haven't read the books. That's something that I've wondered for a long, long time, because I, I, I don't know what... I mean, I've made comments about how we have so many people listed in the creative positions in these books, uh, from, from art directors to chief creative officers to editors, assistant editors, associate editors, group editors, editors-in-chief. And still... <laughs> I mean, stuff like this goes down. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I that's all far, far above my pay grade. So I couldn't even pretend to to tell you what any of these people do and who makes the decisions and why they make them. But uh, it's interesting that so much of went of what went down in this issue has is basically planting seeds for the for the big upcoming crossover here. I didn't expect it, and. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan. You guys know I'm not a big fan of the other world stuff. I'm not a huge fan of uh, Saturnine, but I've heard a lot of good things. So let's uh, <laughs> let's remain positive. Uh, Damien continues. The way both battles ended was a bit weird, but I didn't notice it until you mentioned it. I suppose I'm used to the wor- the rules of other world being completely arbitrary, so I excuse plot holes in a way I might not in another story. My headcanon is that the priestesses stop pointless fights. So in the first encounter, they end it when they discover that Excalibur wants to protect Jubilee and Shogo, so they are on the same side. The second battle ends when the gateway is built. They're fighting to prevent it. Why keep fighting when you've lost? And that there's... I, I think your headcanon is, uh, is smart. <laughs> I think it's a uh, good way to be because I was just so frustrated reading it because I didn't... I. It felt like just a series of unconnected vignettes that somehow were supposed to be a story. I didn't understand why it, we'd get, like, okay, we have we need a fight here, so we'll just do a, a one splash page, and then we'll move on to something else. It felt very, very strange. I think I referred to it as the other world effect in the show notes, just as a... You know, as a lampshade for it, it's just like I gotta explain it some way because they didn't bother to in the book. But I think your 
I think your head cannon is the right cannon, and that's what I'm going to be going with from this point on. So, anytime Otherworld acts weird, we will uh, we will go back to to this uh, <laughs> to this uh, little bit here. Damien continues. The externals did surprise me, but I seem to remember that Richter was involved in the story that got rid of them, so it's at least relevant to his experience. Also, they had to set up Kandra's amulet to be stolen in the postscript. I'm assuming, I'm presuming it's the same gem that Rogue and Gambit find in Saturnine's closet. And yes, I totally, I totally missed that. I totally overlooked that. It's, I'm like 98% sure that that, uh, that the gem that Gambit and Rogue found in the closet was Kandra's life essence or whatever. I mean, because why wouldn't it be? It, ha- it would have to be. <laughs> Otherwise, it's really, really ridiculous. And Kandra is tied up in some of the more boring aspects of Gambit, you know, the, the guilds and whatnot. So definitely, it's definitely got to be that. And mea culpa for, for missing that, because I, I should have gotten that. I should have, I definitely should have gotten that. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Overall, I enjoyed this despite its flaws. I remain impressed by how consistently good Marcus Toe and Eric Arshinaga are. The, bu- the book is beautiful. And I agree. Uh, they are definitely doing... The heavy lifting, even in months they don't have to, <laughs> you know, where sometimes the story is really good and the art is just fantastic, and then sometimes the story's kind of lacking, but the art is still fantastic. So, very, very good stuff here, and uh, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on this uh, somewhat confusing issue issue for me. <laughs> Speaking of confusing, uh, we got a message from Jason Colby, who is going to defend Empire: Colon X Men. Now, Jason says, I'm listening to your podcast in arrears. Another show I follow calls this disreputable practice time banditing. So I'm just now hearing you talk about the above-mentioned issue, and I felt compelled to chime in. And never worry about listening in clumps, listening late. I'm just happy people are listening. So it's all good. Um, Jason continues, I must admit, I kind of loved Empire colon X-Men. It's completely silly. It telegraphs its deep shallowness right from the get-go by giving us a character named Rutabaga and a title page that calls back to a farcical tower defense computer game from a dozen years ago. I was a particularly ripe audience for this approach because of how much I was not liking the main Empire story. How bloated, over-serious, retread the same ground, and just plain generic Marvel event overloaded it was. So a book inside the Marvel Universe, but on the outskirts of the event, winking at the event and taking the piss out of the event while the event was going on, was right up my alley. Throw the Golden Girls into the mix? Go for it. We're all having fun here and none of this matters or will ever be spoken of again, so why not? Well, when you put it that way... No, no, I still hated this. (laughs) I still hated this. Maybe because I wasn't reading the main Empire story, uh, or maybe because... These are books you're supposed to spend, you know, 10-15 minutes with, and I spend entire days with them. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's my problem all along. But, uh, no, you're right that this is... I mean, this wasn't serious. I don't know how serious Empire, you know, Prime was. Uh, I could imagine. I am a veteran of many Marvel events, and... I mean, how far can you keep topping themselves, right? It's... It's always the most dire circumstances, and they're even more dire than they were two months ago with the last event, and, and so on and so forth. So I could see this miniseries uh, being somewhat of a let-up, 
right? Is the it's like a popcorn book where you could just enjoy yourself. You could just put your feet up and get a story that's tied in, but not as I mean, you said over, bloated, over serious, and retreading the same ground, which is basically Marvel events. So I can totally understand appreciating it on that level. But personally, I I still hated it. (laughs) I still disliked it quite a bit. (laughs) Jason continues, It did seem a bit of a waste to take the dangling thread of the pretender, Wanda Maximoff, public mutant enemy number one, which had been dangled way back in in Pox and use her up in this farce. But other than that, I was totally on board here. And it's true. Uh, Wanda, the usage of Wanda here... Like, I I don't know why they even... It feels like something that they gave away, right? Because, I mean, there is a story there. No matter how little I care to see the Scarlet Witch again, and how tired and fatigued as I am of the No More Mutants thing, unless unless it's Deadpool making a comical sign to put on Staten Island, I still feel like it's a story worth telling, especially with all the stuff we've got going on with Exodus and uh, the fact that... I mean, she is, as you said, she is public enemy number one. To use her in this sort of way, where she kind of she kind of slips on a banana peel into screwing things up even more. I don't know. And, I mean, and she, of course, she was well intentioned. She's trying to make, uh, you know, she's trying to make amends. But still, there there is definitely whether I want it or not. There's definitely a Wanda story somewhere. In our futures. Jason continues. As an aside, I'm frankly stunned to learn from your podcast that Explody Boy was not a pre-existing mutant character. I've met the very similar Boom Boom who can make things go boom. And also, stop me if you've heard this one before, she's had quite a few alternate code names. Yes, I've heard that. I've heard that. I've met Beak who has a beak. I've met Strong Guy who is a strong guy. I've met Gold Balls who, uh, oh, I'll stop there. Anyway, it never occurred to me that Explody Boy might not be a real character. Probably one created by either Scott Lobdell or Grant Morrison on an off day. Sir, you have disillusioned me. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Explody Boy was all new for Empire colon X-Men. Which is one of the reasons why it kind of got under my skin so much here. It was like... They went for, like, the the lowest hanging fruit here with such a silly name. This is like a Trapper Keeper character, you know? This is someone that you'd make to to be LOL random. And you give him a stupid name <laughs> and a stupid power. Uh, I, like I said, I, I liked his scene in Empire Number 4. I thought that was a decent scene, but sometimes the journey ain't worth the destination. <laughs> it's just not great here. I do wonder if we'll ever see Explody Boy again, because I could I could see him showing up again. I could see him being part of a team. <laughs> I just kind of hope he doesn't. Uh, Jason continues. Now, here's a news hook. As I write this, it's less than a day since I opened up my digital issue of Sword Number 2. Now, Sword is going to be something launching post-X of Tens for us here. And Jason picked up Number 2. He says... I mostly avoid previews, so I was shocked and appalled to see that the second issue of this brand new X title is a friggin' king in friggin' black tie-in. Then I did a quick Google and was even more shocked and thrice as appalled to learn that issues 2, 3, 
and 4 of this brandy new X title are all friggin' king in friggin' black tie-ins. Yeah, it sucks when they do that, doesn't it? <laughs> Welcome to Marvel. Um, yeah, I, I don't look at the previews very often either. But I do uh, order my books every month from a discount comic book service. And for all the King and Black issues and tie-ins, they, they've been putting a little code. And it's a really, really difficult code. It's a KIB. So every single King and Black tie-in has KIB in the, in the title. So you know to pick it up if you're, if you're a completionist or a sadist or someone who uh, has a... Spending problem, I don't know Or maybe you're, maybe you're just going to send them all the way to get slabbed uh, 9.6 So uh, you'll, you'll be uh, able to retire when you're uh, 70 But yes, I know that these sword issues are King and Black tie-ins There's also going to be a Marauders King and Black tie-in um, I want to say we have another X-Book that's tying in with it as well And no, I'm not looking forward to it Um... Yes, we're going to cover them because I'm an idiot, but uh, yeah, this is something Marvel does, and it really sucks. I think when I covered uh, Deadpool the other day, I mentioned that the like the second ongoing of Deadpool actually launched at a secret invasion. So it was like you'd get this brand new Deadpool number one, and it's a secret invasion tie-in, and it just it stinks when they do that, but they... But they do that, and they do it pretty often. Jason continues in parentheses to say, Here, please imagine a sighing sound that conveys simultaneous irritation, indignation, regret over $3.99 that I'll never see again, and yet also relief that this is now one X title I can write off and not worry about until perhaps maybe when it hits Marvel Unlimited. Is anyone out there reading King in Black? Anybody listening? Are you keeping up with King in Black? I've seen... A couple of the issues in the shop, but uh, I really have no interest in picking them up here. I think it's a Venom thing, because what isn't a Venom thing these days? But uh, let us know. If you're reading King and Black, if you're looking forward to the sword tie-ins and the Marauder tie-in, and uh, if there's any other tie-in that you might be uh, looking forward to, or if uh, you'll be skipping those episodes when we get to them. Uh, Jason continues. In theory, I like the idea of the X-World more firmly ensconced within the larger Marvel Universe. In practice, though, I'm struggling to think of recent times when I've been pleased with the results. I guess this is just a part of the problem with all Western, massively shared universe comics. We want it all to hold together, but we also want to forget about the parts of the universe or of continuity that are crap. Probably no perfect solution here, but one easy rule of thumb I might suggest is <clears throat> don't start off a brand new title spinning out of one event by immediately tying its first entire arc into a completely separate event. <laughs> Sorry for yelling. That was all in caps, by the way. I didn't want to yell too loud, though. So he had to get that off his chest. But perhaps you could comment on the merits of t event tie-in miniseries a la X-Men colon Empire versus events just taking over an issue or more of an existing series. Yeah. Um, <laughs> personally, I come from a time in, in the comics industry where editorial fiefdoms were a thing. Like, editors would have their characters, and they still do to this day, but... Back then, 
the line of demarcation was so much thicker, right? I mean, you'd have the X-Men books, you'd have the Avengers books, you'd have the Spider books, you'd have the 2099 books. Everything was its own thing, and there were crossovers on occasion, but they meant something. Except when Wolverine was involved, because he was everywhere. But for the most part, like if you saw the Avengers and the X-Men teaming up, it was an event. It was something they were building to. It wasn't just, oh, in this issue, the the X-Men are going to see the Avengers, or the Avengers are going to see the X-Men, or the Inhumans are going to... It was something more special. That's the way I like my comics. I like the X-Men being part of the Marvel Universe, but not inside the Marvel Universe. You know, I like them on the same planet and in the same universe, but into their own thing, because they are different characters. They are very differently toned. Their stories are much different. Their struggles are different. I like them being left to their lonesome. And when they do cross over, I want it to be special. So when we have these mass crossover events, which, I mean, we go back to Civil War, we go back to Fear Itself, Secret Invasion, uh, the, the, the Dark, what, the Dark Age crap, the Dark Reign that they did, um, AVX, uh, Axis, all these things that have these tie-ins and these miniseries and these crossovers, and it makes it so nothing really matters because... If every issue is like a super special thing, then none of the issues are special anymore because they're all the same thing. I don't like the idea of crossing everybody into every event. I understand the marketing side of it. I understand the a little bit of the editorial side of it. I guess the editorial side, I understand just the storytelling part. I don't. Um, of course... I mean, we're trying to talk about this as art versus commerce, or you know, and it's a hard thing to do because, of course, they got to make money. So if they can milk a few more buys by throwing a King in Black logo on anything, they're going to do it. And unfortunately, we're going to get caught in that crossfire if we are a completionist like I am, uh, b have a stupid show like I do. Or C, you just want to be a part of the entire thing, right? You want to follow something. I've been in that boat many, many times. Even post-Marvel Zombiehood, if there's a, an event that I want to be all in on, I'm going to buy everything about it. Uh, Spider Island, back uh, in like 2011, 2012, I decided that I wanted to be all in on that. So I bought everything Spider Island. So weird miniseries that weren't very good, <laughs> really weren't all that pertinent, uh, all the amazing Spider-Man issues involved, everything. I was a completionist for that event. So it's a toughie because, uh, you know, Marvel knows where their bread's butted, so they're going to do whatever they can to keep, to keep zhuzhing it and keep people buying the books that they otherwise may not have, and it stinks. It really does. I, I don't know much about S.W.O.R.D., since it's hitting after X of Swords, I'm assuming that Swords, Swords... I'm assuming there's a reason for it. <laughs> and uh, I have the first issue, which I flipped through, and it looks like it's going to be a mighty slog. But uh, we'll worry about that another day. But when we take a book like Sword, right, and we start it in, I'm assuming, X of Tens, giving it one issue to just introduce itself and then going right into King and in Black, that tells me that... Sword doesn't really have a reason to exist as an ongoing series. If everything about it has to be 
ensconced, as you said, in an event, then what happens when there's no event? Well, I mean, I mean, it's Marvel. There's going to be an event all the time. But is this just going to be an event book? Is this going to be a book that just ties into every event? I mean, we have we have a we have a pattern of behavior here. It's a small one, but we do have one. I wonder what's going to happen come Sword Number Five, Sword Number Six, where hopefully King and Black will be over with. What then? We've had one issue that's not tied into anything. So wh- where do we go? I don't know. But by then, Marvel will have like the twenty-five bucks we spend on the book by then, so they don't care, and it'll just be whatever. Uh, now Jason wraps up with so until Donny Cates reveals that Krakoa is really just a breakaway province of the planet Clintar, make my next last. I don't know what Clintar is, and I don't think I want to. But thank you, <laughs> so so much for writing in, especially since. You're the first person to say something nice about Empire X-Men. So it's really, really cool to hear an opposing view or just another view. So thank you so, so much for that. Next up, Andrew Franklin is talking about X-Men number 11, another Empire issue. This is the issue that was tied into both X of Tens and Empire. And Andrew says, I totally agree that this was a great way to do an Empire tie-in. I still didn't really care for the issue, though. I understand why this series, X-Men Volume 5, has so often made you rethink doing this show. I think it's pretty awful, even if this issue isn't the worst one. I still found it to be cold and distant. I thought the dialogue was bad. The creepy cult-like nature of the framing scenes turns me off. The Arako stuff does to me what the, quote, generic antler-headed aliens did for you in Avengers. Yes, what a, here's a callback to my uh, one of my main complaints about, uh, not complaints so much, but an observation or trepidations about reading something by Jonathan Hickman because I don't want to get back into the skin in the game uh, discussion here, but with his Avengers, it's like his new addition to the Avengers lore is these boring, generic, antler-headed aliens. It's like, who cares? Who cares? Not me. But I understand. I totally understand because the Summoner character, while creepy and off-putting, he is pretty generic, right? I mean, he's just a creepy dude. Um, And yes, X-Men Volume 5 has been the book to make me rethink doing the show a few times, a few times here. What really sucks about the volume is that when it's good... You can't touch it. I mean, it's beyond good. Uh, X-Men number six and number seven, I mean, those are just excellent comic books. And they they inspire so much conversation. They, they make us ask so many questions. They keep you tuned in. They keep you engaged. And then we'll have, you know... Brew eating the egg, and we'll have Empire tie-ins with Vulcan and his friends getting drunk, and this one, while I did quite enjoy it, I'll give it to you, this was cold and distant. Cold and distant is a very good way to do this, because it doesn't feel like we're getting to see, when we talk about, and I talk about thought balloons, right, getting into the the minds of these characters, and how we just don't do that anymore because it's too comic booky. This would have been a good issue for that, having Magneto think, getting into his head and thinking. I think that would have softened and it would have warmed the issue. Him knowing what he has to do in order to save his people, him knowing that he is like he is the brick wall. Right, he has got to stop 
these aliens from doing what they want to do. And he's going to do it by any means necessary. And he's going to do it by being a master, you know, strategist, easy for me to say. And also just having really badass powers. The fact that we don't get into his head and instead we get magic saying, hey, can you get up off your old ass? And, Ma- and Magneto going, yeah, sure, let me put on my red gear and then dropping, dropping anvils on a guy. I could definitely see uh, that seeming cold. And I, and I agree. I do agree. Andrew continues, I did like the way the team combined their powers in the fight. That reminded me of when Cyclops would tell the team to do maneuver Z11 or some such, and it makes sense that the Krakoans would have power synchronization strategies. I also like Magneto crashing the satellites down on the plant guy. Yes, that was really cool. Very, very cool scene. Really played to Lionel Yu's uh, strengths as an artist. Uh, just... And it was great seeing the X-Men working together. They, you know, using their powers in tandem here, using, playing up their strengths, right? I mean, you had Iceman and Magma doing what they did to a volcano to make shards. I mean, it was really, really well done, uh, you know, strat- strategically. Easy for me to say again. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, I don't like to be so negative without really anything else to say, but this book really just defeats me. I'm glad that you liked it as much as you did, though, and that goes for anyone else who thinks it's great. It's just not for me. So until I feel otherwise, make my next lapsed. Well, thank you so much, and I definitely feel like that's the kind of the healthiest tack to take. Um, not all these books are going to be for us. I mean, next issue, next episode, we have X Factor again, which I don't want to say I'm dreading it, but, you know, I'm more dreading the process, right? If it's something I don't care for, I need to try to remain um, even with it, even keeled with it, and uh, make sure that I emphasize the fact that I'm not judging a book by its quality, I'm judging a book by its applicability to me, right? Uh, Just like the book we're discussing today, Marauders number 12, I happen to know for a fact that there's a certain listener to this program who loved this issue. And someone I, 90% of the time, I agree with wholeheartedly. Here's an issue that just wasn't for me. It's, you know, just the way it's going to be sometimes, I guess. But uh, thanks again. And uh, we're going to wrap up with a missive from our friend Evan Bevins regarding Giant Size Magneto. He says, Magneto on Giant Size number two at a dinner party with Emma Frost, how fancy, and Wolverine number three may be the greatest evidence of mutant minds being altered, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't snicker when he passed out and Wolverine stole his helmet. No reason for it to happen, and it was really out of character for Magneto, but I'm an easy mark, I guess. You know, I didn't so much mind the fact that it happened. You know, if... This story happens in a vacuum. I'm all about it, right? It's a funny haha, you know. It's 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 you know it's messing with the straight, right? It's Magneto's usually uptight, wound up, and here he is a little sloshed. If it were more novel, that's fine. But the fact that just about every Dawn of X book we read has someone getting sloppy drunk, it just feels petulant. It feels so repetitive, and it's like, okay, we get it. We get it, you know? It's, I think I compared it once to, like, that one friend you have who wants everyone to know that they smoke weed, and so every conversation goes back to the fact that they smoke weed, and it's like, okay, dude, we get it. 
we're fine with it. Go ahead and do your thing, but just stop mentioning it over and over again. Because that's all you ever talk about. Here in the Dawn of X books, it's like, if some if we get a book where someone's not holding a bottle, or not passed out in a corner, it's... Uh, I don't know that we've had one yet. <laughs> so... If this were in a vacuum, and if we had Wolverine getting Magneto drunk, I, I would have probably chuckled at it. But instead, it's, uh, you know, Magneto is just like the 55th mutant to get drunk in that month of X-Books. And it just gets a, a little much. Gets to be a little much. Evan continues, Magneto relaxing, letting his guard down, could show that this is one of the first times mutants actually can. Very, very interesting. Still, without knowing what Emma wants to do with her island, it seems odd for Magneto to act as her realtor or glorified gopher. And that's very true. I do wonder what's going to happen with that island, or if we're going to see that island again. Something I've been, like, thinking about in in the back of my own muddled mind here is, like, these giant-sized books, like, they almost feel like Earth 2 stories, right? They only really apply to themselves. We're not getting mentions of them anywhere, Outside of these books here, you know, Storm's sick, but we wouldn't know it from Marauders. Nightcrawler and company bring Lady Mastermind into the fold when we saw her come through the Krakoan portal during Hoxpox. Um, Phantom X is now involved. Magneto's buying islands for Emma Frost. It feels like it's its own thing. Like, does this even matter? Will these ever be touched upon in the main books? Or I, I just don't know. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe this island will come back into play in Giant Size Storm, like to maybe put a bow on it. Maybe Lady Mastermind will get involved and Phantom X will get involved. Well, we know he'll be involved, but it just seems like a very strange cluster of stories that that are kind of big events in and of themselves, but they're not getting mentioned anywhere else. So it makes you wonder, are they even happening? Storm's dying And starring in Marauders Where she's perfectly healthy Very, very weird stuff here So I guess we'll see If that island will get another mention in I think about four episodes We'll be wrapping up the giant sizes So we'll look forward to that And we will uh, we'll hope for the best, I guess But uh, that's where we'll leave it for the mailbag today I want to thank everyone for writing in And sharing their thoughts And if you would like to do so as well, please, please feel free to. You can find me a couple different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or hit me up on the old Gmail box at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can find stuff over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, you could do so at facebook.com forward slash 90sxmen. It's one of the slashes. Whatever slash you put in an internet address, I don't know which one it is. I think it's forward slash. Backslash? I don't know. 90sxmen is the group. So if you're on Facebook, look for that. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya.